Welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville. I'm Al Hunt here in Washington. James is out at his farm in Virginia. We are proud partners with the Sign Institute of American University, but continuing to shelter in place as I hope all of you are hosting from our home studios. We have a fabulous guest this week, but first, please subscribe to 2020 Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or where you get your podcast. James, before we get started, you're doing well, okay? Health-wise? Yeah. Good. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's as well as possible under the circumstances, but which is a lot better than, you know, 99.5% of the other people in the country. So I, I, I just do not allow myself to have any negative feelings about sitting here every day doing the same thing over and over yeah, again. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> Self-isolation uh, or isolation is not the preferred mode for any of us. But it's it's a heck of a lot better. And you know something? Everybody can adapt if you're if you're reasonably comfortable the way we are. Uh, there are a lot of people who are suffering, though. Uh, but uh, we have a- really are. And you think of young people that they're having to go through this. I mean, oh. you know, we're older, man. We, we've had a hell of a run. As Bill O'Reilly would say, we're on our last leg. So who cares? Yeah. No. Well, I, I wouldn't. <laughs> Well, I wouldn't go quite that far. I'm not, I'm not. Well, that's what O'Reilly economy. said. He said, look, most of the people are going to die. going to be on their last leg. Open up the economy. Yeah, yeah. All right, Bill, you go, I mean, Bill, you go first. Okay. That's you go right. first. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Head right into it. I haven't seen Bill or I haven't seen Glenn Beck or I haven't seen that, that uh, crazy Lieutenant governor in uh, Texas volunteer to go first, but we'll see. No. And this guy in Indiana now, he's another genius. Oh, the congressman, I'll tell you. Well, there's a lot. Yeah. Well, 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 let's go through some of them in a minute. We have so much to talk about. Let me, before we get to Trump and the virus, let's talk about Wisconsin. Uh, it was a it was a special, it was a primary in uh, early April. The Democrats tried to postpone it. They tried to make sure you could defer absentee ballots. Uh, they could come in postmarked a week or so late. The Republicans said, absolutely no way. We're going to force an election on April the 5th. They won in their state Supreme Court. They won in the United States Supreme Court. Democrats thought it would be a disaster. And guess what? A liberal state justice Supreme Court nominee won big time. Probably tells you pretty much, doesn't it, James? It does. It did one thing that, that Marquette, that had, they have a good poll, a Wisconsin poll. That guy that runs it, Charles Franklin. I think people have a lot of respect for him. I would give anything, and you could do it very accurately because you'd get a list of people that voted, and just call and, and said, I, "I see that you you voted in the election. Did you vote mostly? Uh, the reason voting mostly to vote in the Democratic primary, or was your reason the reason to vote more for the Wisconsin Supreme Court race? Because what I'm hearing a little bit, and I'm hearing this from some, some kind of high end analysts." is, yeah, they did well, but, you know, when you have a primary, that skewers the turnout. I'm, I don't think that's why they came out to vote for Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders. I don't, think that was, I don't think that was the factor that drove these people to stand in line that long for a, a race that has already been decided. But I would just love to see, and I think that would be a, a data point that, that would be valuable if people would gravitate toward it, and if anybody knows Charles Franklin at Marquette, that's my idea. And it'd be easy to draw the sample. And, you, you know, you could ask for, you, you could even just do it to, to register Democrats if you wanted yeah. to. In a state like that, 
10 points is a lot. It's a landslide. I, I think there are two anecdotal facts that suggest that you're right, that it was that Supreme Court race that brought people out. One was the money spent. I mean, the money the two parties spent beforehand was not on uh, the uh, presidential race. The Democrats weren't spending money on Biden. They were spending money on that race. Secondly, the Milwaukee Journal, pretty good newspaper. Most of the reporting they've done since then and talking to voters said, this is, this is why we voted. Uh, it was that Supreme Court race. I think a caveat for Democrats, it's, it's very good news for Democrats, not just the, the 10 or 11 point margin, but where it was, the suburbs and, and good turnouts and, and places like Madison and not so good in rural areas. You know, the small caveat is that the presidential race has some impact. And with Trump on the ballot, uh, it probably would have uh, made some difference, but not 11 points. Yeah. The other thing is, I mean, as usual, is if, if you're having been regular listeners to this podcast, you noted Tom Etzel is at the very highest esteem by the host of this podcast. And he, he had a typically, you know, brilliant column this morning. And I I, I just think, you know, I, I, I put it in print and I'd say it here, barring some way to stop people from voting, this election is going to be a big election for Democrats. It just is. And I, I know Nate Cohn, Nate, you know, Times can do Senate polls. There's a Senate poll in Arizona. You know how good it is. It has Mark Kelly up 52 to 41 or something. And you, you're not... I, I just... I, that's that's gone out of line with, with other surveys. Yeah, you're going to... And now we got Burr selling his Capitol Hill townhouse... Yeah, above market value to a lobbyist. And I know that's not Tom Tillis, but all you wouldn't, if, if it was two Democratic senators, you know, if, if, if Tim Kaine did that, you would worry about, you know, Mark Warner. Well, well, James, it's even worse. I mean, I mean, there is Richard Burr. There is the, you know, one of the top officials in the state. I think a chairman of the state uh, Republican Party uh, was convicted. Uh, a fraud. Uh, there was right. the case, the North Carolina uh, congressional race in 2018, uh, fraud. The Republican Party down there, uh, you know, they they prove Lord Acton's theory that uh, power can corrupt and absolute power totally corrupts because they have been a corrupt party. And I don't, I think Tom Tillis is a dead man walking. I, I, I do too. I, I, I mean, I, and, and I, I I do think you know, I, but maybe I'd, I'd have to reevaluate after uh, the election. But I've, I've always contended that the, the Trump will get a higher percent in Wisconsin than he will in North Carolina. Yeah, no, no, I agree. You know, a a a, a Democratic incumbent governor who has gotten high marks on dealing uh, with this pandemic a good Democratic uh, Senate candidate and a weak Republican Senate incumbent uh, uh, from a state that basically went for Obama in 08, almost went for him in 12. Uh, and uh, it is it is a purple state that I think is heading more towards Virginia than South Carolina. Uh, I think South Carolina, I think North Carolina is heading more toward Virginia. And I think South Carolina is heading more toward North Carolina. The other thing, Harrison... Will will break forty six. He's the Senate candidate against Lindsey Graham in South yeah. Carolina. It yeah. will break forty six. If it gets big enough, who knows? I mean, you know, remember we got an off chance in Kansas. A uh, very, very, very good private polling has Collins behind in Maine. 
And she's always depended on about 25% of the Democrats in Maine voting for her. She's not going to get them. She's not getting remotely close to that now. I, I, I think there are a number of, uh, prom- of very promising Senate seats. And uh, it is, I, I never have disagreed with Tom Etzel, and I'm not going to disagree with him now. Um, this is headed towards some kind of a, some kind of a big mandate uh, in November, and Trump will do anything he can to stop it. I mean, this week, James, we keep saying, you know, there's nothing new. He just is Trump. But this week he rises, uh, or excuse me, he sinks to new. What's the name of that river again in uh, in Louisiana? The Atchafalaya River. Yeah, where, you know, they said and the legend it has, has no, no bottom. bottom. And that's what we keep thinking, and Trump finds a new bottom uh, every week. I mean, I love defunding the American contribution to the World Health Organization during a global pandemic is probably as dumb a move as you can make. Uh, For the first time ever, the IRS will be sending out checks that has the president's name on it. Um, This is a man that's desperate, uh, and his press conferences have become comical. Uh, Those five o'clock follies are follies. And he's uh, he's just a mean, angry, vengeful man. And James, I think he's just hurting himself every day. Yep. Well, I, 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 hurting himself, yes. And the, the, you know, now you you, you, you know, I, I think it's just a matter of time before a lot of these incumbents and, and McConnell and everybody starts getting very itchy about all of this. I, I really do. I know if, if it was Democrat, they'd be utterly panicked. I mean, they're, they're, they're so scared of Trump. They're so scared of the Trump's base. But it, it, I got a feeling that Tom Tillis is going into caucus and, and Martha McSally is going back to the caucus and Cory Gardner is going back to the caucus and Susan Collins is going back to the caucus. All right. And Johnny Ernst is going back to the caucus and Steve Danger is going back to the caucus saying, hey, look, this thing is not going that well on the ground right now, just so you know. Right. And, and, you know, you're going to see more and more of that. You're going to. I, you know, I think one thing to check is primary dates. Uh, any place that a primary is over, uh, I think you're more apt to see it. The one that surprises me, who I thought would be doing more of that, is Cory Gardner in Colorado, because Colorado is not a Trump state, wasn't in 16, will be even less so in 2020. Uh, he will probably end up running against a popular former governor, John Hickenlooper. And Cory Gardner is in the same situation as Tom Tillis, a dead man walking, uh, if he wants to keep becoming, uh, keep staying part of that Trump he, bandwagon. He can't break with Trump. If he does, he's done. All right? The Trump base will turn on him. His only hope is that Trump gets more popular. If, 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 if he goes to post right now in Colorado, he loses by eight points. He doesn't just lose. And he, you know, so... I mean, it's like, you said, look, you can take this drug. It ain't going to keep you alive for long, but it's going to keep you alive for now, and they're working on something else. Well, you say, okay, let's go with that. And they don't, they can't, they, if you, none of them are, like, tempted to break because if they break, they'll turn on them like crazy. And they're kind of caught betwixt and between, and, and you just got to keep applying the pressure. But the only hope is, you know, somehow or another, it goes away in the summer and the economy comes back and, you know, we're, we're all happy in November. I don't even think that would win for them, but that's their hope. Yeah, maybe the only thing they have, uh, you mentioned Mitch McConnell. I want to tell anyone who hasn't, take a look at the New Yorker, Jane Mayer's uh, long, long profile of Mitch McConnell. 
Uh, it's a uh, it's a it's a really well done, uh, superb journalism. As we always expect that of Jane Mayer. She's terrific. We used to work together. And James, one of the things that one of the little things in there that fascinates me is that he doesn't have the support. This is Mitch of his three daughters. I mean, that that tells you something about someone. You know, there are always family squabbles, but uh, that one was uh, was more striking. Yeah, I mean, I, I love Jane Mayer. I, th- I think Jane Mayer's, I don't know, three, five, I don't know, pick a, a, a damn below number in in terms of, uh, of a journalist. It, 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 Mitch McConnell, it, what really screams at you at that story, he's literally a man without a soul. I mean, there's nothing, absolutely nothing other than power that Mitch McConnell believes in. And, and, and taking care of his donors. It, it, it's like money. Stunning. Yeah, power and money. And he kind of started yeah. as a, kind of wanted to be like a, a almost a John Sherman Cooper. I mean, and, and just- Who he worked for. Yeah. It, it, it was just stunning. Like you peer into his soul and it's just vacant. I, I mean, Rand Paul, he does kind of believe in that goofy libertarian stuff at, at some point, right? I, I, I believe that. Uh, I don't think that, I, I think Pat Toomey, like at some level, I'm probably smart enough to know it's not, but it started out at least believing and trying to believe in this goofy supply shot stuff. I don't know. I think, some, you know, I think it's possible that, you know, people that you disagree with have some sense of something. He has nothing. That was the amazing thing about that story to me. Yeah, it was. And she got the fellow who he is described as his mentor, uh, the person that really is more responsible for inspiring him uh, to go into politics. Uh, and that person said exactly what you just said, uh, that uh, Mitch believes in nothing, that he is uh, he is sold out of soul, assuming he had one. But it's a, it's a good read. The New Yorker this week, uh, Jane Mayer. Let's stay on Republicans for a while. We can go to Democrats. But let's talk about the way some of these Republican governors are handling things, James. Now, I think some deserve a lot of credit. Larry Hogan in Maryland and Charlie Baker up in Massachusetts, Mike DeWine uh, out in Ohio. But there are some others, aren't there? Well, I mean, DeWine, I'd give even more credit than Hogan and, and Baker because Hogan and Baker are in definitely blue states. Blue states, right. right. DeWine is a governor of a pink state. I mean, it, it, don't, we might have a chance because of the extraordinary circumstances 2020. So, I mean, I, I would just rank him first. Not that I, I think Baker and Hogan are not doing anything but a, but a good job because it's a little bit tougher for him. Yeah, I think two people, all right, Tate Reeves in Mississippi, but we just give him a pass because you just know he's stupid, all right? DeSantis stands out and Brian Kemp stands out, but the one that stands out the most in my mind is, is, is South Dakota. I mean, she former congresswoman Kristen Noll. She's everything, and she's bragging how she texted with Jared Kushner, and it was all everything. And then, of course, you have this horrific breakout at this meat processing plant that could adversely, actually, adversely affect the meat supply in the United States. Yeah, you know? and 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 she's been a total. She's a denier. She's a you know a total denier of everything. And and I mean it gets. It's it, it's it's banal stupidity, right? It it I think DeSantis is just 
he's just like a, a, a Trump guy, all right? He, just, he, he made a bet, he won on Trump. The same thing with Brian Kemp. And Brian Kemp is a really stupid man. He, he, you can see him, you can look at him, and, and, and the overwhelming thing that emanates from him is stupidity. And he said, what was it, in April? That, no, that he just found out that you didn't have to be symptomatic to, to catch this thing. Oh, man, come on. Come on. How could you be so stupid to even say that, to think that? That's a governor of one of America's 10 largest states. Yeah, right? Yes. And it's one thing to be stupid enough to think that in some period of time. It's another thing to be stupid enough to say it. I, I, I just, it, but I mean, there's Greg Abbott in Texas, the guy in Oklahoma, he, he's too stupid to even bring up. It, it was you know, showing his family out eating in a restaurant in Oklahoma City. We we talked about this on the phone the other day, but I would really like to see an in-depth story comparing California and Florida, two huge states, California almost twice as big, but both big, both tourist destinations. I'm here. I'm, it's nice to hear you. I guess that's the secretary, Albert. It's all right. That's good. Don't 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 erase that. Put it on the shelf. We need those spontaneous moments. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll talk after we talk to the secretary. Yeah, I mean, James is James is fascinating as we think we are. Uh, we have we have a guest this week who is even more fascinating. Only in America could two hacks like us be graced by one of the world's most distinguished diplomats, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, who's publishing her seventh book, Hell and Other Places. She's published more books uh, than some politicians have read. Uh, Madam Madam Secretary, we are honored. You left Foggy Bottom 19 years ago. Since then, you've started a company, been a full-time professor, served on numerous boards, and chaired countless global commissions, given hundreds of lectures, commencement addresses, and in your spare time, written seven books. I can't wait for the next 19 years. (laughs) Why? Tell us about hell and other places. Well, thank you, and I love being on with you. Uh, Let me just say, there were questions kind of what I would do after I'd been Secretary of State. And people would say, how do you want to be remembered? And I said, I want to be remembered. I'm still here. And as we were leaving, I was trying to figure out what I would do. And so somebody said, well, you can go back to teaching or um, you can be chairman of the board of the National Democratic Institute or do things with the Aspen Institute or um, start a business and give speeches. And I said, fine, I'll do all of them. And so that is what's happened is um, I have been doing all those things. And in my own head, they all fit together. Um, I learn from one thing or another specifically, uh, and I enjoy it very much. And, um, and then I, you both know me very well, is it took me quite a long time to find my voice. And so now I'm not going to be quiet. So that's where I am. And uh, the title of the book I originally chose because of the most famous thing I ever said was there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. It was so famous it ended up on a Starbucks cup. And so that's how the title came about. So I've chosen other destinations. I didn't rec- think at the time how relevant it would be at the moment it came out. 
Well, it's a it's a really it's a terrific book. I really I read it the other day. Liza sent it to me online, and I read the whole book online. Uh, there are wonderful stories there. I think my favorites, Madam Secretary, were about Czechoslovakia, about finding your grandmother's uh, journal, uh, about your relationship with Havel, and maybe one of my favorite anecdotes is why you are exuberantly showing your grandchildren around Prague. One says to another, "She's crazy." <laughs> Well, I tell you, the background of that is there is a wonderful book called The Legends of Prague that I had tried to find because the Czechs are very well known for their puppets. And I had a puppet theater and there was this character in it, which was what is called a merman. And I was trying to figure out what the merman did. So I found a book and the merman, the Czechs have a very strange sense of humor. And so the merman lived under the bridges of Prague, and their job was to take the souls of those who had drowned and put them into little pots. But when not enough of them drowned, they drowned them. And so then this book goes on to point out uh, various uh, real places in Prague and give stories with them. And I'd retraced it. There were um, these headless uh, warriors, um, and I was trying to explain the thing to the children, and that's when they said she's crazy, and that's probably true. But it's Madeline's tour of Prague. <laughs> well, it's a boy. The book's a fascinating read. You know, you are you are an optimist. You really have always been an optimist. But in, in reading the book and going through some of the stuff you've written before, when you when you write about the Middle East and China, Russia, boy, it's pretty hard to be an optimist, isn't it? Well, I do say I'm an optimist who worries a lot. Um, and so I was recently describing myself. I had was somewhere where they told me to describe myself in six words. So I said, a worried optimist, a problem solver, and a grateful American. Um, and so that's how I kind of deal with the fact that there are issues, but I so count or did count on the United States being a problem solver and understanding what our role was as a partner to other countries to deal with an increasingly complex world. Well, that's a perfect segue to our the substance guy on this podcast, James Carville. James, take over. Oh, thank you. Thank you, uh, Madam Secretary. I've, I've interviewed a lot of people, been around people. You're one of the people in this world that actually intimidate me, so <laughs> I will not be too nervous here. So, this is a hypothetical thing, but all too true. I have a place in South Mississippi, and the guy that mows my lawn, Ben Bob, let's just call him that. You know, he's a nice guy, calls him Mr. Carville and stuff, and he's a kind of trumpet guy. And so I would assume I had this conversation with him, which is likely. And I said, well, you know, how you hanging on the COVID thing? And he said, well, you're doing this. And he said, James, why do I care about the, what the hell is a WHO? And why do I care about that? And don't you think Trump is right, right that they were lying to us and we give them too much money? What would you tell me to tell him? Well, um, I, I'm glad because this has come up a lot and it explains very much uh, how I see that problems need to be solved in the 21st century. There is no question that the virus knows no borders. Um, and uh, so the question is how you deal with it throughout the world. And you do need to have cooperation among countries. Um, I was at the UN, as you know, um, and one of the issues is how the United Nations organizations work. They are imperfect. I have said 
that uh, people and organizations in their 70s need a little refurbishing. And uh, the UN is 75 years old. Uh, but the WHO uh, has purview and understanding of what's going on across borders. And it is a functioning international organization that needs help. The United States cannot solve this, uh, the virus war by itself because it comes from other places, as we know, and we need their cooperation. And while uh, it needs reform, we can't get it if we're not at the table. So I think we need to be a part of it because no matter what, we depend on what goes on in other countries. If we think about trade, somebody has to buy what we're selling. And so we are interconnected. So tell your guy, by the way, I believe fully in respect of those who have different views. And so I would spend some time explaining it in a non-patronizing way, if I could. Based on what you know as of now, is, is there some reason to believe that, that China influenced it? Because there's an AP story that said China delayed six days from telling the world that there was human, there was, it was possible to transmit from animal to human. By all the evidence I see, we knew that a long time before January. But at any rate, is there some validity to the fact, to the, not the fact, is there some validity to the idea that China pressured the WHO for a, a limited period of time to not go public with what they knew? Well, I, I do think that China has a, a lot to answer for uh, as far as the virus uh, is concerned. I mean, in its initial cover-up and continuing lack of transparency and the failure to uh, cooperate fully uh, with American and international organizations. I think the truth is that as of the moment, we do not know what the influence has been, but I do think that China does have a lot to answer for. Uh, I, from what I can tell of kind of a TikTok on the WHO, they did try to warn about it earlier uh, but I think we do need to look into it. I think the problem is that we need to look forward now and we can uh, really look uh, back and analyze all this. But at the moment, we need to figure out what is the way to deal with um, an international problem that is going to need an international solution, even if uh, there is our main concern is what's happening to the American people. But the American people are dependent on what happens in a variety of countries that the international um, environment has to deal with. Well, so this is a question, it's kind of maybe unfair, but I asked Albert this question yesterday. So let's, because well, we assume things here. And so Vice President Biden's elected president of the United States, and he picks up the phone and he, on November the 15th, he calls you and says, Madam Secretary, I, I, I'm, I'm slammed, as you can imagine. One of the things we're gonna have to do is we're going to have to appoint a commission to look back at this and find out and tell American people what went right, what went wrong, blah, blah, blah. Uh, do you have any ideas of someone that could head this commission that would have credibility and knowledge and everything else to do that? I, I don't, frankly, but I'll think about it because I do think that it's going to have to be somebody that uh, not only understands some of the medical aspects um, and understands the science of it, but at the same time is capable of understanding uh, how an international system works. Um, and uh, it doesn't have to be an American. 
I think it probably would be good because we have this tendency of, of not wanting to deal with those that are um, foreigners. But I do think that the commission itself would have to be multinational. And there are a lot of people uh, that have been involved with WHO or the United Nations or health that should be a part of it. There are questions, there's no, but are deciding that we're not gonna support it, uh, the, the WHO or stop paying our dues or whatever is counterproductive uh, because then we have no influence. And I have my own experience with that. Um, I don't know whether you'll remember this, but what happened was that when um, I, at the beginning of the Clinton administration, we were behind in our payments to the UN on peacekeeping operations and deliberately decided to cut what we owed and meant that I didn't have the kind of influence I needed to do reform, leading the British, our best friends, to deliver a line they'd waited over 200 years to say, which was uh, representation without taxation. Um, and we just don't have the influence. So we have to figure out, we cannot do this by ourselves. There's no question. And I think it is worth having a commission, not only to deal with this, but a commission to analyze what went wrong with the United States government so that it isn't just a matter of blaming previous administrations. Madam Secretary, that, I think James's question brings up the larger point of American leadership. For most of the time since World War II, uh, whether it was other pandemics like Ebola more recently or the financial crisis, uh, America has been a global leader. Uh, I think it's safe to say that America is not that today by choice of this president. Uh, how much does that matter and who fills the void? I think it matters a lot. You, you talk about Ebola, but also um, HIV AIDS and President Bush and PEPFAR and setting up an AIDS fund right. and also trying to do something that needs to happen now is to involve the private sector uh, more in all of this, the public-private partnership. And um, I think that uh, if we, I so believe in the United States, uh, and I think that, you know, President uh, Clinton was the first one to say that we were the indispensable nation, but I said it so often it became identified with me. And there's nothing about the word indispensable that says alone. It just means that we need to be within a group of partners. And, and I think that's what has to happen. Our diplomacy has to understand that we need partners. We need to find countries uh, where we're on the same wavelength, that the problems are the kind that require that. And it's not simple because we've offended everybody at the moment. Um, and we are going to have to find countries and leaders that wanna work with us and trust us because we cannot do it alone. Well, that brings up, if there is, as we expect there will be, a President Biden next January uh, 21st, how hard will it be to uh, recover uh, from this vacuum of leadership? Well, I think it won't be easy, but I have to say this. Um, I obviously am supporting Vice President Biden, but partially I have known him a very long time uh, when he was uh, Senator and Chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. And I think... Uh, as much as I've loved working for various previous American presidents, I don't think there's anybody that has as deep uh, an understanding of foreign policy as, as Biden does from all his activities and a good reputation. He knows how to get people around him. Um, and I think, but uh, it is not gonna be easy. I've been to a number of um, foreign policy meetings. I think some of you may have heard about the most recent Munich uh, 
national security conference where people thought we were a joke uh, when um, there's just uh, saying how important we are without thinking through how it affects other people. We have a lot of bridges to men uh, and not just because it's do goody, but because it is what is necessary uh, in order to make America safe and to help our people. We can't do it by ourselves. You want to suggest who might, who a couple of people who might be a good secretary of state? No, I'm going to stay out of that. I thought you would do that, James. I want a good, feel good, uh, bipartisan story. So Holbrook regales me all the time about how he and you convinced Jesse Helms <laughs> to support the AIDS funding. And I think it's a great story. Well, I'm, I thank you for asking it because I do love to tell this. So uh, what happens is that um, I am UN ambassador and he becomes chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. And uh, what happens is all of a sudden I get a call as I'm up in New York and I've been invited to give a speech to a women's college in Raleigh. So uh, what happened was I said, well, you know, I'd, I'd love to think about doing it if you go with me. And he said, well, that's interesting. Uh, so let me think about it. So he calls back and he says, I've just changed my schedule and I'm going with you. So we do that. And when somebody's introducing you, they don't say this is the stupidest person I ever met. Um, and he couldn't have been nicer. We're flying back together. And all of a sudden, a few weeks later, I get a call from him saying, would I go with him to his alma mater, Wingate? And so he picks me up in Raleigh. Uh, and uh, we're driving around North Carolina looking for barbecue places uh, and just chatting. And then he had just had a hip operation or something, and he could barely get out of the car. So I am helping him get out of the car, hanging on to him. And all of a sudden, there's a picture, and it says the odd couple. Um, and so I gave a speech in front of him, and you know we just had an interesting time. Then I get named Secretary of State. And... Uh, I go in to do my round of calls, and he says, "Miss Madeline, we will make history together. And we did work together on the expansion of NATO, um, and he really was somebody that became a good friend. And people don't believe it, but I believe in bipartisanship. And so um, I would like to see a Republican Party that actually works with us uh, and doesn't make things up. So uh, I can be friends and am very much into bipartisanship. I'd like to. I'd like to see me, you know, get into Harvard Law School. <laughs> all right. I mean, we, can, we got a dream. All right. <laughs> we, we, we got a dream. On the NATO expansion, it, if as you look back on that, and of course Putin used that. In if you if you look back, do you think we were too aggressive in in expanding NATO, or was there a different? But might it might have been a different way to go about this. I have to tell you, one of the things I do is always go over decisions and try to figure out if they were right thing to do. And believe it or not, I was not the, uh, the pusher of this from the beginning, because here I was born in Czechoslovakia, and I didn't think I was didn't want to be a special pleader. But the truth of the matter is that uh, the Soviet Union disintegrated. Um, and it isn't a matter of whether we won the Cold War. They lost the Cold War. The system didn't work. Um, and there were these countries that had been put behind the Iron Curtain at the end of World War II, um, and they wanted to have a different position, and they wanted to be a part of it. And I can't tell you how much time I spent 
uh, as did President Clinton, trying to respect the Russians and work with them, uh, worked with Yeltsin, all kinds of things. We even said at some point, if they wanted to, they would be able to join NATO um, and tried to figure out what to do. And I know there's some people who think it was a mistake. I do not think it was a mistake. Just imagine what would have happened if we hadn't done anything. I do think that when um, actually General Shalikashvili and I uh, were going around initially from country to country talking about the Partnership for Peace, which was the progenitor of it, and um, and could see that um, they wanted to be a part of it. We told them it was not a charitable organization, that they had to do their share. And so that's the part that has to be worked on. But I think it would have been a mistake not to expand NATO. Yeah. Uh, Madam Secretary, uh, I know you have to go, uh, and you uh, do have a long record of having bipartisan both relationships and friendships. Uh, you talked about your dealings with Jesse Helms on the United Nations and other things. And in your book, uh, you, you, you talk about, yeah, you disagreed with your successors, Colin Powell and Condi Rice, on some policies, but you really had a warm uh, uh, respect and friendship with one another. I get the sense from your book, you don't have that same feeling about uh, Secretary Mike Pompeo. Well, uh, that is true. Um, but the bottom line is that what happened when I became secretary, I reached out to my predecessors and um, some of them uh, reached out to me. Uh, we created a group that uh, really spent time together. I have had only one call uh, with Pompeo when he was director of the, Nash of the of CIA and I'd been on the external advisory board and he told me that my services were no longer needed. He quickly called me when he was named and said he'd been named. I said I would be as helpful as I could be. And I think it's only so he could say he had talked to every former secretary of state. I have not heard from him since. And one of the fun parts, I don't know whether you ever watched Madam Secretary, but um, there was this program where Colin and Hillary and I were invited by Taylor Leone to um, the State Department after something that had happened at the White House. And I got an unscripted line in as we sat down, I said, Madam Secretary, it's wonderful when the current Secretary of State calls her predecessors in to consult. We used to do it all the time, and they left it in. That's fabulous. I hope everybody who's listening will read to hell and other places. Uh, Madeline Albright, we forgot to mention in that long resume of yours in the last 19 years, you've also been a star of television shows and movies, too. Uh, so uh, there's no end. We look forward to the next seven books uh, and uh, to keep having you on. And uh, at some point, uh, have, have your grandchildren had a chance to read the book yet? No, but they um, have been a part of it. Uh, they're very funny because they've come to a lot of my other um, events. And my youngest grandchildren who live in California said after one, we didn't realize that Grandma Maddie was so funny. So I'm hoping that they'll see the humorous parts of the book. Wow. When you can have a grandchild say that grandma's funny, that's a, that's that's one of your greatest accomplishments. Thank you so much for being with us. And again, terrific book. Uh, we, we hope we can talk to you again. Great to be with you. I loved watching and talking to both of you. Thank you very much. Thank you, ma'am. It was a huge honor for me. I appreciate it. Thank you, ma'am. James, I have you. Yeah, I'm right here. <laughs> that was uh, that's quite a. You you think we've been elevated? Um, you know, just it's what a what a fascinating person. Oh. I mean, 
what experience is in history and you know all the things that she's been witness to and and that she sounds so strong and assertive and oh, you know brilliant i'll I mean, just say it too i mean the, her personal story is extraordinary too uh you know they escaped from nazi germany she came over here her uh, you know, it was an incredible story. And then and then she married this uh, very wealthy uh, uh, newspaper heir. And in ni- this is all in the book, so I'm not talking out of school. 1982, he came and said, I've fallen in love with another another woman. I'm leaving you. Uh, at which point uh, she did. I mean, that's a devastating thing to happen. Three kids. And uh, look what happened in the next, uh, you know, 40 years. She's uh, really remarkable. And one more story. I asked her one time to talk to the Wake Forest in Washington class and we were sitting around a table and everybody had a name card up and the woman next to her, a young student, was named Madeline. And uh, the secretary said, you know, I like that name. And the student said, I was named after you. Ah, I love that. <laughs> so she's had a remarkable life. All right, all right we've, we've gone high. Uh, we've followed Michelle Obama's advice. Now let's get back low again. Um, you were talking about the governor of South Dakota who has really screwed up and the governor of Florida. Huh. Oh, I mean, you can't throw in Oklahoma and, you know, like, I mean, I mean, the, the, it's just a, it, it, you know, I looked at the, the Quinnipiac poll, which is a pretty good poll, 89% of the people in the country and like huge numbers of Republicans support the stay at home stuff. I mean, my brother, my family, they're not, we ain't getting out of here and, and, and they're not might have voted for John Bell. I don't discuss politics with him a lot. Uh, they're not even, and Trump could tell them to, to not stay at home. It would matter not one whit. And, and I, somehow or another, he's so disillusional. He thinks that people are dying to go back to work. He thinks that if he tells them to, they will. And then all he needs to do is throw the switch. I, I mean, he's not in any way, shape, or form in any reality. People are going to stay this way. They're doing it not so much because they told to. They're doing it because they want to do it. And, and, and they're scared. Yes. As they ought to be. For good reason. They ought to be. I mean, I'll tell you this much. I mean, I mean, there is no greater uh, baseball fan than you and me. And if for any reason, which they won't, but if for any reason Major League Baseball would start again in July, I sure as hell am not going out to a ball game. I wouldn't go if LSU was playing Alabama. I wouldn't go to the game. I wouldn't even be tempted to go to the game. Uh, and, and neither are other people. But, but I mean, just look, look at that. Look at the data. And I've, and, and I've seen multiple data points. And a, and a poll is not going to be that. And, and by the way, they're just poll registered voters. I mean, they, they, uh, uh, but, but, but it doesn't matter. There's overwhelming support. All these governors that have these things and the mayors that have it, they're all, all their numbers are astronomical. Look at Ron DeSantis as now one of the worst governors of any governor in the country. Well, I would love to see a story. We talked about this today. I would love to see a story. Uh, I was mentioning this before the secretary got on California and Florida. They are similar states. Uh, California's a lot bigger. And the, and, and the record in California has been just, you know, light miles ahead of Florida. Far fewer per capita cases, uh, deaths. And that's because of leadership. It matters. It's the stupidest thing that a human being can say is it don't matter who's in there. It's all the same stuff. Right. Let me tell you something. If we didn't have John Bell and we had Eddie Rasponi in Louisiana, and that's just not my democratic opinion. 
I don't know of a single Republican, and I know a lot of I know a lot of Republicans, right, that doesn't have the same sentiment. The two gubernatorial choices in Louisiana. And right? Eddie Rosconi was this guy, and he said, "I'm a businessman. I'm a businessman. I'm a businessman." And and John Bell Edwards was a son of a elected sheriff in a pretty important parish in Louisiana. Was, was Army Ranger. Went to LSU Law School. Was in the legislature for two terms as, as, as the minority leader of the Democrats. Thank God, and his brother is the sheriff of Tangible Hope. Thank God we got a politician in charge. Thank God we got a politician in charge. <laughs> James Carville, be safe this week. We'll be with you next week. Thank you for listening. This was a really good show. We could have Madeline Albright every week. Uh, we'd be something, wouldn't we? Uh, I hope you follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Politics War Room. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Be generous. The podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. For James Carville, I'm Al Hunt. Safe out of here. <laughs>